Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood, and my guest today is returning champion Dr. Lindsey Gray from Sydney University. We had a great conversation about birds, flight, feral animals, and feathers as we sat down together to watch episode eight of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, Lords of the Air. The feathers of both adult and chick are specially adapted to provide warmth. They're very fine and grow in a thick mat. But the feathers of most birds have to serve another purpose as well. Flight. If beauty comes from perfection, if grace is a measure of skill, then a bird in the air must be among the loveliest sights in nature. So what is the passion for birds? What is it about birds? I think that they were easy to encounter as a young child. And there was, my dad's was, my mum and dad are really into nature as well. Mm. They haven't professionalised their interest as I have. But um, I think there was a field guide at home. So you could go out, spot a bird, come in, look it up in the book that, and and learn Mm. a little bit about its behaviour and habitat from a, a really accessible book Mm. and I think that I was just hooked Mm. and they're beautiful. They are beautiful. It took me a while to get comfortable with birds. I think they they didn't freak me out for, I think it's just that whole kind of mammal mammal bias where I think you look at certain birds and they've got that real reptilian kind of thing going on and so maybe it's, and also they're so unlike us. Okay that I found it maybe harder to connect with or okay. harder to appreciate beyond just like, wow, they're beautiful. Okay. 
like, but to feel that kind of connection with. Yeah, no, well, I do feel that with birds. So it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I think that just watching them quietly, you know, observing their behaviour. Mm. I've always been someone that can just stand there for 10 minutes and watch mm. something that's going on around me, mm. including you, Ben. <laughs> and isn't it fascinating? Oh, God. Um, mm, <laughs> making all sorts of little notes. Yeah, I get it. Um, all little micro judgments. No, no, I'm not judging. So... I, yeah, I don't know that the 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 way you could observe a bird during the day in a in a country where most creatures are nocturnal. Yeah, um, that's that was a hook. But also, my mum loved budgies, and we bred budgerigars as children. Mm. And I have very early mem- memories of mum cleaning out the nest boxes of our budgies and cradling the hatchlings. Yeah, and in their various states. So when they first come out, you know, they're ridiculously yeah. gangly, nude. Yeah. They can't, yeah, they can't hold their head up. Their eyes might still be closed. But then the older siblings have got all their pin feathers and then, yep. then there's a lovely fluffy one and I'd get to keep them warm in my little chubby hands while <laughs> mum cleaned. And, yeah, that there was such a tender exchange and, yeah. and I don't know, I've just been in love with birds ever since. I want to get their feathers and rub it on my face. <laughs> Give them a sniff. Maybe not pigeons on the street, but I do like pigeons too. I love. Yeah, I think pigeons are great. I, same as ibises. It really bums me out that everyone hates them so much. Oh, I know they're beautiful. I know. One, they're beautiful, and B, you know, it's you know, bin chickens. It's like, well, when I was a kid, you never saw ibises in the city. So I think be the, happy with what you've got. Yeah, but I think the reason they're in the city is maybe we screwed up their habitat, and they're just looking for food. So maybe and, get and reliable angry at water. Yeah. Is that what it is? That's part of it. Yes, right. I think they're a wetland, uh, semi-aquatic species, so right. they need they need food and water. And having both of those things simultaneously in a country where ninety five percent of the land's been cleared and yeah, yeah, yeah. rivers have been drained or dammed or irrigated, yes. dare we mention that word? Um, it's very hard for them to Talk live. About victim blaming, right? Absolutely. Mm. Screw the overseas. <laughs> I love them. What a, what a, and what a horrible fall from grace. I, no, no, no. I actually think that there's a cult of the ibis and people love them. You think so? I do. I, I think, think they're just so They're good. on T-shirts. I mean, they're, they're, they're memes all over the internet. So I think it's – I think there's love-hate going on. Yeah, I, I've, I feel bad for them. To go from being worshipped as a god in ancient Egypt to – Having the average Australian go, oh, bloody bin chicken. Oh man, the Well, thing. let's maybe we can take some we can take some satisfaction in imagining what the Ibis thinks of the creature that puts all that weird stuff in the bin in the first place. What do you reckon it thinks? Well, like what, well, how wasteful for starters. <laughs> it's funny you say the bird uh, birds as a kid. Birds were definitely one of the first animals. Birds and ants were the first animals that as a child I remember having a real, like, consciousness upload in realising that they were talking to each other. Mm. And it was two magpies in my grandparents' backyard. And I still I still remember it so clearly, just sitting on the concrete watching them. Mm. And it was, oh, they're, they're yeah. not just walking around going, nah, 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 nah. They're, they're actually communicating. It was a, a, a juvenile magpie and maybe mum or dad was kind of running it through the ropes. Yeah. And yep. it was just um, like, you know, one of those real profound backyard experiences where you kind of realise that there's a whole 
thing happening yep. that you're not privy to. I'm happy that you had that so young. And then I went home, I went inside and told my uncle that the animals talk to each other and he was like, ah, <laughs> animals don't talk to each other. Bin chickens. <laughs> what do they talk about? <laughs> Obviously not music and philosophy, you gronk. <laughs> yeah, their own cultural yeah, stuff. And their own thing. Close up. The prunes are truly exquisite. Oh, very well. A song, like bright feathers, conveys a message identity. Well, that, that's an interesting thing. Like with bird calls, mm. I've heard that there's grammar. Is this true? Well, there's definitely localised language. Mm. Um, I don't know about individual groups of birds and their grammar, yeah. uh, but there's variation amongst birds and, and they can learn from each other. I think there's bird song that is learnt and some of it's learnt in the egg, which is extraordinary, wow. from parents calling during incubation. And then some of it is innate. Right, so it's in the DNA. Some, yeah. So it's like there's both going on, which is the same for us. It's amazing. So so when a, a raven or whatever goes, is it? does that mean whatever it means every time or is there kind of variations within the call that could mean something slightly different? I, or is I, a call a call? I would say that no, a call is not a call. Mm. When I listen to other humans speaking a foreign language, it all just always sounds the same. Yeah. You know, blah, 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 <laughs> when I know it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. So, and, and when birds are in the morning, when the bird call starts. The morning chorus. The morning chorus. Mm. Is that, like, do we know what? Is happening there? I think they're saying good morning to each other. <laughs> they're territory marking, uh, yep. they're prepping for the day. They don't have vocal cords like us mammals. Right. They have a special organ called a syrinx. Syrinx? Yeah, which has all these sort of dangly bits hanging off it and when mm. they pass the air over it. And, I mean, think of this. Think of the diversity of sounds that birds make yeah. all from this particular organ. And presumably dinosaurs had the same way of emitting sound. So they probably had all sorts of sounds beyond the uh, <coughs> that we uh, render for them in films. Is that is that true or is it just kind of a convenient line that, Birds are dinosaurs. Oh, they are dinosaurs. Please explain that. Well, they are, they've evolved from a lineage of dinosaurs called the theropods. Mm -hmm. And that they are what, theropod dinosaurs. Theropod? theropod dinosaurs include the velociraptor, right. very agile hunting dinosaurs, some of which are now understood to have been feathered. And so that's where this theory of the uh, origin of feathers comes in, that it was actually to keep dinosaurs warm, much right. like hairs keep us warm. Okay. So feathers perhaps weren't for flight originally. Maybe they were just for thermoregulation. And they are very toasty, aren't they? Yeah. Please stop <laughs> buying $100 mm -hmm. down jackets, mm -hmm. dear listener, yeah. because you know that there'll be a living goose out there that's been stripped of its feathers multiple times yeah. just so you can be toasty. Mm. We make clothes from recycled. Um, yeah, what's an alternative? Well, we well <laughs> wait for the goose to die. <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, no, man, but then you can't get multiple yields. I don't know, Ben. I wish I was in charge. But for a consumer well, like, that doesn't want to get goose like, down. For example, you can buy clothes, poly, poly Pro, but then that, of course, releases my plastic microfibers. <laughs> oh, my gosh, what is this? Yeah. David, what have you done to us? Yeah. Um, you can buy clothes made from recycled plastic. Yeah. Um, you can buy <laughs> woolen clothes. Why don't we have some wool? Where's some wool? Well, I mean, it great. smells great in the it's rain. It's expensive though. I know. It's just this is this is this is why I can't talk about this stuff with many people because it just everything hits this dead end. We're like, oh god. No, oh. Well, just go to Vinnie's and buy a hundred percent. There is no point buying new clothes. There's a bunch of clothes out there. My mum is so against me buying clothes from Vinnie's. Sorry, she thinks it's gross. We're well, it's just are these clean, shorts are from Vinnie's? Clean, clean your clothes. I'm she wearing saw them new the other clothes day. She's like, time. new shorts? I'm like, well, from Vinnie's. She's like, ugh, ugh. How can you wear them? I love going. You don't know who wore them. <laughs> Wash them. On the dinosaur front, mm, it's yeah. uh, like I always kind of heard that in the abstract and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And the first time I truly Correct. knew it or believed it, but like really knew it in my knew bones. It. Not believed it, knew it. Yeah, the first time I knew it, Thank you, I was when I was working at the zoo. And they got me to feed a cassowary. Mm -hmm. And mm. I was standing, it was like that opening scene of Jurassic Park where you don't see the raptors, you just see the fronds of the ferns shaking. <laughs> then like, <laughs> this thing starts coming towards yeah. me. And those three toes, Absolutely. bang, like hitting the ground. And it looked like a, it looked like a dinosaur foot. Yeah, because it I know. It that, that, that's what I mean. I knew. Yeah. And then it. Stood before me. Obviously, there was a fence between us, but it eyeballed me in a way that was so much more terrifying than being eyeballed by a mammal, mammalian predator. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd stood in front of the tiger cage and the lion cage and been eyeballed, and it, it was scary. But it, this was like, oh, this is non-negotiable. You're, you're the Terminator, and if you could disembowel me right now, you would. Yeah. And they I are superior beings, birds. It was terrifying. And it was that real sense of like, you know, as hard as life would as hard of life as life would have been on the plains for early humans with lions and big predators. I feel like it's a blessing that there were mammalian predators. No, no, no. They were mammalian. They were terrifying birds. The Ooh. demon duck of doom. We had Wait, what? We had the demon the, duck of doom. The demon duck here. of doom. <laughs> a giant thought to be predatory duck like oh, bigger, bigger than a moor, you know, like a big yeah. A duck. Yeah. But yes, just back to our dinosaur moment. Yeah. Um the cassowary, emu, kiwi, moa, the el our friend David's uh, elephant bird yes, from Madagascar. Yes. These are the ratites. They're uh -huh. the paleonatha. So they are all the most ancient birds. So if you want to think of the, the dinosaur family tree, yeah. these guys, I guess, are the most dinosaur-like of all the birds. And next wow. it's the chickens and stuff, the chickens ha and then the waterfowl. So you can sort of see the, the dinosaur in them. So yeah, more clearly than a parrot, for example, come eyeball right. to eyeball with the chicken, and then after your cassowary, that's your most ancient dinosaur-like creature. With the help of their feathers, birds have mastered all the manoeuvres in the air. Flight. How do we? How do we think flight first of all? <clears throat> oh, Go for it. Gosh, the pressure representing <laughs> all of science here. <laughs> there are two standard theories. Yeah. One is that. Limbs allowed creatures to crawl up trees, which had conveniently evolved, which we've covered yes. elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> and 
when one gets up a tree, it's nice to not have to go back down to get yep. to the next tree, so you glide. And so because a little bit feathers, of skin evolves. Well, that, well, skin in the case of a pterosaur, yeah. a glider or a bat, mm. but in the case of birds, they had these incredible things all over their skin, feathers, which turned out to be fantastic for uh, aiding flight. Mm. And when they, yeah, and then they just evolved to be longer. And, and so you have to assume that it began as gliding. Yeah, well, that's one theory. The other theory is running and jumping. So yeah. theropods are yeah. hunters. So think of Velociraptor in Jurassic Park, running, running, running. Well, take a jump. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. So that's the other theory. But I think come, going up and leaping down seems more likely to me, but, you know. One way or another, birds go to a lot of trouble to keep their feathers in good condition. And in truth, their lives depend on them, and not only for support in the air. Birds are warm-blooded. They have to be to produce the energy they need for their very active lives. So insulation for their bodies is essential, and nothing does it better than a coat of feathers. And what is the, what is the anatomy of a feather? Well, David does explain it very nicely. I think incorrectly he says that an individual feather acts as an aerofoil. It's it's the it's the fe- it's the wings themselves that are the aerofoil. But anyway, wait, wait, layman terms. What's an aerofoil? Well, the aerofoil, you know, the shape of a plane wing. Yeah. So if the aerofoil is the wing, what yeah. do the feathers do? Because well, like aeroplanes have feathers. Yeah. So feather. <laughs> um, well, they form a sleek structure for right. the air differential to occur. Okay. Feathers are extraordinary, so they form this lovely netting mesh they're very lightweight uh-huh. so the feathers as david beautifully explains have interlocking barbules and so on that allow for waterproofing and fabulous aerodynamics and ornamentation well yeah i mean that's uh, oh yeah and uh, well, yeah and obviously <laughs> and obviously ornamentation is something that can that comes after the the more functional aspects of the feather well that's actually another theory of feathers is that maybe they were early ornaments. Oh, really? Yeah, maybe on the cold-blooded dinosaurs, if they did exist, and then they became thermoregulatory structures. Wow, so the feathers possibly started as bling. Maybe. And then got yeah. a more functional Well, there's purpose. plenty of bling on cold-blooded animals, isn't there? Is there? Yep. Just think of your standard water dragon. Oh, yeah. All the bling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> chameleons. Oh, chameleons. Come on, it's bling city. That so, dewlap thing on lots of lizards. And, oh, yeah. The, the, all the um, dangly bits. Yeah, the dangle bit. The, um, the I guess, oh, no, frill neck lizard, I guess they're using their bling for a purpose, though. Yeah, but maybe it's sexy. I don't know. Oh, I'm not, not a frill neck lizard. <laughs> anyway. But one family has excelled all others in the shape, the colour, the sheer beauty of their display feathers. They live in New Guinea, the birds of paradise. Each species has its own particular dance, its own characteristic way of showing off its finery to the best advantage. And am I incorrect in thinking that, I mean, all intelligence is relative, but a chicken seems to be less complex than a raven, no? Oh, well, perhaps, yes. Sorry, that... Sorry, I shouldn't have yeah, you shut were, you, you down. You were shutting me I down before you were I finished the question. <laughs> Us. No, no, no. Please. Um, 
Put me naked no, in the no, middle the of the ravens, jungle and the chickens are much smarter than I am. The ravens, they're more higher being when it comes to social structure and they, you know, they use tools for goodness sake, solve yeah. complex problems. Yeah. Yeah, the corvids, butcher birds, magpies, ravens. You talk about this kind of lineage from dinosaur through to mm-hmm. the raptor-like birds. Down R- to ratite. Chi- ratite, sorry. Yeah. Uh, is there more, I hate using this terminology, but for want of a better word, more primitive intelligence in terms of just kind of like hunt, seek, you know, as opposed to, you know, when you get start getting into birds of paradise or songbirds that seem to have a more complex life mm. than mm. kind of a scrub turkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let's not... Let's not diminish the skill of the scrub turkey. Oh, there's no diminishment. <laughs> I mean, these guys not only have harnessed the urban backyard to yeah. suit their incubation needs. I mean, yeah. they're like stuff sitting on the egg. I'm going to use compost to incubate my chick and that then I'm not smart. even going to bother looking after it. That isn't well. So they spend all this time thermoregulating some compost, pop yeah. the eggs in, monitor for goanna, unfortunately now cats and foxes and uh, people's dogs. Uh. <laughs> um, and uh, then they just let the bird um, run off. They dig their way out. They that's hatch. very reptilian. Well, they're reptiles. They're just warm-blooded that, but that's reptiles. More rep- but that's more reptilian than a lot of other birds because yeah. most other birds... Yeah. Really care for their young, whereas yeah. like a, but so a snake do some and frogs. So. Well, that's true. Anyway, that's sorry. the thing you find out about biology, right? That yeah, all these hard yeah. and fast rules are not hard well, and fast yes, at all. Well, yes, because everything up to right now, this moment in Earth's history, everything that we see and experience, animal and plant interaction-wise, everything's had however many billions of years to evolve to this point. Mm. So there is infinite complexity and mm. infinite things that even the most primitive and in inverted commas creature yeah. has come to do like our scrub turkey. Yeah. So while it is from this ancient lineage of birds, it does something truly extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. in an evolutionary sense. But back to the, the point, um, <laughs> yeah, Bring I mean, back. gosh, perhaps the mind, what's what's been refined in the mind of a bird of paradise mm. is so, it would be, leaps away from what's been refined in the mind of a scrub turkey. Yeah. But whether one's more evolved than the other, it's, it's like which skills have been exaggerated. Right. So in, a, in, a, in an environment where there's less predation, maybe an abundance of food, there's more license to develop these crazy Sexual selection stuff. But, yeah, the avian mind is extraordinary and we can get into that. Yes. At any time. I mean, I'm ready to go. No, I'm, I, I'm ra- raving. Ra- I, saw, I saw a documentary called A Murder of Crows and it was – crazy they were showing an experiment where they were they'd wear like a, a freaky mask and they'd go and kind of not traumatize the birds but kind of scare the birds that were sitting on eggs and they returned the next uh, season when the eggs had hatched the young getting their feathers and everything they haven't seen this freaky mask and yet when they see the freaky mask they start <laughs> as though the information had been passed to them Linguistically, how? It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, probably. It's crazy. I, mm. Well, I think like us, you know, our minds are very much over-engineered. Mm. Like oh, we can yeah. drive a car, we can fly an aeroplane, we can design and then fly an aeroplane. So no doubt the avian mind, which is infinitely superior in my opinion, and we can discuss why <laughs> later, um, it is probably over-engineered as well. Maybe a scrub turkey could do a bird of paradise routine if we taught it to. I don't know. <laughs> or if there was a reason to. Yeah. So is it a true fact that birds in the main mate for life? Well, first I want to just interrupt you. Yeah. True fact? Oh. 
True fact, just fact. There's no alternative <laughs> All right, facts. Sorry, Dr. Lindsay Gray. Ann Connolly or whatever her name was. Is it an alternative fact that birds mate for life? They are not all monogamous, no. Really? No, absolutely not. Okay. In, in fact, some are raging polygamous <laughs> diehards. That's like the birds of paradise and stuff, right? Where um, kind of... Well, Australian fairy wrens, I think, are very well studied uh-huh. by, I think, people at Deakin University and they are extremely polygamous. They sne- There's lots of sneaky matings going on, even in monogamous pairs, a little bit like in humans. Yeah, right. Uh, where there'll be a stable monogamous pair raising the young, but mm. then each partner might be off having a bit on the side. Right, and, mm. and that's just like a gene-spreading well, thing, Well, yeah, right? and I guess pleasure-seeking. Pleasure, yeah. Mm. Uh, it, no, it, so there are, I guess there are birds, most I think are probably sequentially monogamous. I mean, I've heard some stories of birds in captivity that never repartner when they lose their yeah. mate. Like, I don't know, maybe in Kiwi, but many birds that are even thought to be monogamous, like penguins, they aren't. You know, they repair some each season. Because that really is the the, the, sto- the the story of birds that you hear in a lot of documentaries it's and not, stuff is, oh, they, they pair up and... They're just those that are monogamous are most likely sequentially monogamous, like human beings. Well, not so all human say- beings, but <laughs> <laughs> most. So when- so when you say sequentially monogamous, you mean in terms of For several rearing seasons. an egg yeah. to... Yeah, and um, they'll do that season after season and uh, then maybe they'll disassociate from one another. Right. I know that in penguins, at least in captivity, if they have an unsuccessful nesting, so they lay an egg and the chick dies or the eggs are infertile, hmm. they might reevaluate next season and match with someone else. Okay. And penguins, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, is it emperor penguins where one of them has to sit on the egg yeah, in those the ridiculous... Male temperatures while mum goes off and gets food and then they kind of like tag team doing that. But they may not necessarily pair up with the same male or female the following year. This is completely new information to me. Oh, well, that's cool. That's great. I'm happy for you. (laughs) There's a strong bond though, right, between mother and father bird. <laughs> mother, mother and father, mother and father bird. Yeah, yeah. And but that—that's that, like birds. that's a genetic imperative, right? Because the the act of rearing an egg and then rearing the young is quite labour intensive. To generalise, yes. Yeah. But not all birds form monogamous pairs. Some don't pair at all. Some pair and then do sneaky matings early in the morning, late at night when no one's looking. Others don't even bother pairing and they have the lek-based mating system. What's lek-based? The lek is like, it's an area where all the males will hang out. They'll have their own little territory where they do their performance, attract the female. Right. For example, kākāpō, New Zealand birds, the males, they set up a display on the top of the hill and they boom, like so they'll call, a bit Uh, like a frog calls for a female. She'll come and assess him, his dance, his track and bowl system, that's what it's called. If she likes him, she'll allow a mating Uh and then she might go and mate with someone else and so on and then she raises the chick all on her own. So those sort of, and it's the same for the birds of paradise. She goes round, assesses all the males, maybe mates with a couple, maybe mates with one and raises the chicks on her own. So they're certainly not all monogamous but there are benefits. If you've got a demanding chick that requires maybe a lot of information to be imparted during rearing or a lot of food to Mm. be provided while Mm. it's growing, then maybe it would make sense to be monogamous and have that deep bond. But it's not all, all so it's birds. More, so it's more circumstantial than like, oh, it's a, the rule of all birds is that it's, they... Because lo- I think a lot of religious groups use birds as the argument for oh, 
stable monogamous relationships in humans. Oh, do they? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, no, it's some some birds do it. Okay. And those like, I mean, obviously there's a lot of talk about birds of paradise mating rituals and how elaborate and how crazy they are. I guess like how, how does something like that develop? Is it just kind of over time they just get more and more complicated and differentiated from each other? Or? I've thought about this. I don't actually know what the the bird of paradise ornithologist would say, yeah. but I think what happens is they are released from the need to work together to raise the chick to start with. Maybe the habitat is so plentiful, these mm. rainforest-based habitats, they're so rich in food reserves yeah. that they don't need the male to help raise the young. So sure. he has to develop other means of winning favour in order to, you know, yeah. do we have the mating, <laughs> the act of mating. So evolution leads to these extraordinary displays occurring. They're crazy, right? Yeah. They're really crazy. They are crazy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then, and 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 it would be the same physiologically with something like a peacock, where it gets these insane tail feathers. It's just what it's just that the the needs of the chick and the female are being kind of sated, and he, so yeah, so he, he can, can go off and yeah, but he still he still needs there still needs to be the connection between the two, mm. and so yeah, they it's this weird display thing going on instead of. How big's is it a four bedroom house? I don't know. I mean, but you, you, see, you do see analogous stuff in mammals and in yep, yep, humans. Yep. Yeah, sexual selection is the branch of evolutionary biology Peacocking. that deals with yeah that deals with these ideas. Males will either display or fight. You know, they'll display to the female or they'll fight with each other to hideously termed access the female mating. Yuck. Yeah, I know. The, uh, <laughs> bio, biology, the literature is can be quite. Uh, sexist and gross sometimes receive the female receives the male is that because it was access to mating you is know, that because uh, it was kind of devised by yeah. english men you know the, the answer mid- yeah, I know the of answer. course yes <laughs> receive you can i mean i guess you can kind of see why they would have come up with clinical terms for it especially back in a day where they were observing animals and they had this kind of view of like oh they're just beings that don't really have a consciousness got from that perspective if you're looking at it from the outside it looks brutal it is brutal well, well from a human perspective some are brutal but some are some's mm. lovely you know yeah not that i i don't you know go around watching birds doing it but some some are hideous some matings yeah. are fully coercive, like in ducks, yeah. mallard ducks. What uh, do they do? The males will just chase down the female. I don't know whether she likes it. And they end up tearing out the neck feathers. And, what? Oh, in fact, the um, this documentary ends seeing a <clears throat> something extraordinary at the end of this. What happens? Don't you? I, I mean, I watched, it, I, watched it, it. I watched it like a wong, okay. <laughs> There's a big ostrich penis. Oh, right. Like flopping all around <laughs> at the end, all red and... Intense, <laughs> very confronting. Back to your dis- uh, disgust for the uh, Attenborough's tendency no, to go into this I'm stuff. Fine, it's just <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is something it's funny about you. You're, between you're the more birds. squeamish talking about plant sperm than you were talking about ostrich penises. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, 
and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The leaf litter in these forests is full of food of one kind or another. In any other land, there would be some small native mammal that would burrowing around seeking that food. But not here in New Zealand. Here there's something quite different. It is, of course, a bird. But what an extraordinary one. The kiwi. You're into kiwis? Kiwi, yeah, kiwi. What's kiwi? Yeah, so no, it's like, what, the no, no plural? No plural form in Māori. Really? Yeah, te Oh, so just kiwi. It's just kiwi, So yeah. what got you into kiwi? Uh, well, I was always really fascinated by New Zealand's biota, all the living things in New Zealand, but especially the birds because yeah. there were no real uh, serious land-based predators in yeah. New Zealand. So the birds, like on many islands, were able to evolve in unusual ways. Mm-hmm. So they could get big and heavy, no need to take off and fly away from a predator. They got stinky because mammals, mammal predators weren't sniffing them out, so they could just stink. Wait, um, wait, wait. Why, 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 would they, why would they evolve towards smelling? Is that like a well, mating smelling's thing? smelling is useful. Um, so I guess they might use stinkiness for their own <laughs> communications. Okay. Which that's actually not substantiated. <laughs> but, you know, why not be stinky? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, if you're not trying to avoid anyone or... Yeah. <laughs> I I had a friend uh, that he stunk like a goat in the rain. He really smelt Whoa. like musky. Mm. Uh, and he was convinced that it was pheromonal and mm. that it's what made him attractive it to would, other people. Yeah, that's how he would get his uh, – He was always getting laid. Yeah, most compatible lady. Well, I like the way certain men smell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we've met the same guy. <laughs> Yeah, I got to say the the human the human stink is a little bit better than Lynx Africa or oh gross uh, Rexona Sport. Yeah. It really is, right? Yeah, that's when you know that a boy has turned into an adolescent when they start drenching themselves in Lynx, Lynx Africa. It's li- almost Lynx Africa. It's always Lynx. Uh, so, is it true also that New Zealand birds, for the most part, don't fly? Like um, kakapos don't fly? Kakapo don't fly. The kiwi don't fly. And that is, again, because of this predation yeah, release. Right. Like for many thousands of years, they've not had to fly. So why would you? And mm. they've found food on the ground or close to the ground. So, the kakapo do go into the canopy right. uh, and they do do limited gliding, I understand, but they don't take off from the ground. So is it true that I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that flight is a huge energy expenditure so that if you can de-evolve that ability, much like, I guess moles lose their eyes as they go underground. It's like, why have it if you don't have to use it? 
Absolutely. Right. 100%. Look at you. You've learned so much. <laughs> it only took 13 hours of talking to doctors and professors. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Kiwi, I heard someone say it's almost like they're kind of like a mammalian bird, like they're hairy. Like what's, what's going a, on? Yeah, there's a concept in biology. Of, it's somewhat outdated, but there's this idea that there'll be equivalent kind of creatures occupying niches habitats let's say mm-hmm. in in equivalent forests across the world yeah. and for kiwi they are like the badger equivalent or maybe oh gosh do we like maybe the echidna i don't know so they burrow um they eat a range of invertebrates and some fruit and leaves but mostly invertebrates and they have these other analog- analogous mammal analogous features so because they don't fly, their bones are more dense than most birds. Right, so right. they've got a lot of um, marrow in their bones rather than air spaces and they use their sense of smell to find food and possibly each other. So there's a there's a Kiwiologist, let's say, <laughs> over in America, Kathy Brader, who's very certain that the Kiwi use their poo to communicate with one another, their smelly poo. And their poo is extremely distinctive in right. smell. So what the tragedy in New Zealand is, of course, that mammalian predators were introduced by human beings over mm. the course of the last couple of hundred years and they have decimated the New Zealand avifauna because they're so smelly and they don't fly away. And- what do you think about that kind of culling? Mammalian predators, feral cats, and the yeah, rest. Gosh, isn't that that's a curly one? It's full, it, like it's. I mean, maybe I'm being controversial, but it seems crazy to me that people even push back on that as a. Like, I know someone who's like, oh, they should, you know, it's it's cruel and terrible that they're going out and killing feral cats. And it's, yeah. Well, mm. it's all about rate. I mean, you have to be, if you want to be comfortable with it, you need to look at the numbers, I think. Mm. And I'm comfortable in that realm of thinking, others aren't. But for me, I think, well, we're killing these rats, but if we left that rat alive, in its lifetime it would eat how many native birds? Yeah. Thousands. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, yeah, the ratio is one problem. to a thousand. Yeah. To me it's not even an ethical dilemma. If, right, you're just, it, go for it. Yeah. I, I mean it comes down to what's important. Is it, do we want to have a homogenous earth or do you want to protect things that are highly unique and evolved over millions of years. It's so interesting you say that because if, if this has come up in a couple of other episodes and uh, uh, people have all said it's about what we value. But to me it's like it's kind of irrelevant what we value. Right? I mean I, obviously it is in the sense that we are the ones that have the ability to change the current paradigm of how things are. But what is actually valued is the diversity of what existed for millions of years before the introduction of species that can absolutely decimate hundreds of other things that don't have any kind of protection mechanism against cats and other predators. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think if you can kill the creatures humanely, mm. then I feel strongly that it, it should be done. Yeah. Um, but because, as I say, like that animal will be killing many more animals than mm. itself. <laughs> well, uh, Not yeah. great at maths. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable, but a lot of important decisions are uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, and it feels like going forward with the state of the environment being what it is, like a lot of those kind of uncomfortable decisions are going to have to be made, not just about biodiversity and everything, but the way the individual human interacts with the environment and how much is enough. Like at what point have you kind of exceeded your reach in terms of your consumption and how much you've used versus how much is available? That seems yeah. to be the most uncomfortable thing that people are uh, wrestling yes, with. Yes, and we've we've lost touch with that 
to an extent. I think 10, 15 years ago we were all more aware of our carbon footprint than we are all of a sudden. We're distracted at the moment, mm-hmm. which is understandable. But mm-hmm. there was a – I remember some great calculations you could do at the, at various museums. You could go in and say, this yeah. is what I do. And, yeah. and it would say, well, you would need 20 Earths to yeah, sustain yeah. your lifestyle. <laughs> but, I mean, there is there is this movement in – in some countries that we should be eating these creatures that are culled from the forest, these introduced mammals yeah. and things. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's respect. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's really tricky. I mean, I am quite at the – I'm a very tender person but I can be very hard-nosed and I think that we have to, at least in the case of New Zealand and perhaps – uh, we should be doing a little bit more here in Australia, yeah. but we're always distracted by something else. Mm. I think that we should just get on with the job and remove the mammals and there needs to be some more strong decision-making and then uh, there's there's all these creatures and plants that mm. are still there hanging on yeah. and when you remove the introduced biota, things bounce back in unexpected ways and I think we just need to get – we just need to get on with it. Yeah, I mean I assume as someone who loves birds – that you would feel really passionate about that. I wonder I wonder what it is though because people place this is – is it that we as mammals we empathise with mammals more? So the idea of killing a cat over letting, you know, 100 rosellas get killed in a month is – that's that's fair and equitable because, hey, I really empathise with that cat when I stare into its eyes and it's a pet and all the rest. I think, Ben, you keep coming across this issue where we are so far down the track – in our training and our worldview, I can't comment on that. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I don't know how people feel about cats. People love. I mean, I love cats. Do you see? I I know people that love cats, but I have loved birds for so long and hated cats. Mm. I mean, not hated, but mm. just being able to understand the desire to have a cat as a pet mm. because we have the knowledge. Like the knowledge. Yeah, I'm. I'm really. I get on board with knowledge quite early on. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I don't know why we keep breeding cats. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, well, I, th- I mean, I think you know, other than dogs, it's one. It's one of the most ancient relationships that we have with an animal, right? So there probably is something in our – look at you. Your whole face is scrunched so down. You're, you're moving the microphone relate. away from your mouth. So you yeah, don't I'm, like, I'm not relating. <laughs> I'm not the right – yeah, I sometimes think, you know, you, we need an intermediate here to <laughs> to help, no, but that's, but that, help that, us that, communicate. But that, that's that, that's free of any kind of judgment call. Like that is a, that is a historical fact. Like other than dogs – Cats are the, the one domesticated kind of companion animal that goes way back. So like with dogs, is there just something in I don't know. I think that, that there is quite strong evidence that dogs and human beings have co-evolved yes. behaviourally. I'm not sure that's the case with cats. Well, I think the thinking is that cats basically domesticated given, themselves. They haven't given a shit since day one. Yeah, <laughs> you'll bring me the food because I'm fluffy and and – 20,000 years later, yeah. it's still it's still working <laughs> out still, for them. We're still subservient yeah. to you. Oh. I think what people maybe haven't had to face, uh, and I'm talking about anyone really, whether it's a politician making a decision or a person who has a cat that comes around mm. who's lovely, like they haven't perhaps read historical accounts or contemporary accounts of fantastic things going extinct before their eyes. So when you actually look at it and mm. – and 
read an account of, mm. of we tried to go into the forest and find the ground parrot or whatever and we you know they were there last week mm. and now there was only one and we went in two weeks later and there were none yep. we went back 20 years later and there are still none mm. like that's really heartbreaking and when it is conclusive which it is now as mm. to what is causing the extinction of these extraordinary evolutionary novelties mm. i think there is yeah there's a strong moral imperative to kill predators and, oh. and 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 I don't know. As I say, I'm very hard nosed. I think we shouldn't have cats as pets. No, I look. I hundred percent agree. It should just be no more cats as pets. Oh, I hundred percent agree. Harden the harden up, people. Oh, have a different pet. Why do we all need a dog? I know that we co-evolved with them. We co-evolved with bed lice, <laughs> cockroaches. You know, like yeah. But you don't stare I, into a bed lice's eyes at night and feel as though up, you're hard So up. you're against dogs as well. I think I'm against. I think. I mean, I'm no Peter Singer, but um, who's Peter Singer? Peter Singer is an Australian philosopher who writes broadly on ethics and morals aspects of animals. And he is against pet ownership. He says that pet ownership is just a, a sl- some form of slavery. I um, agree with that in a lot of cases. Well, yeah. Anyway, maybe we don't need pets for a while or maybe we should have, as various Australian conservationists have advocated, maybe we should have native pets for a while. Um, anyway, little, yeah, yeah, I just think harden up human beings. Oh, no, this I, I is agree. Th- This is our chance, as David has been saying. Yeah. This is our chance to make some serious changes and we can live without cats and dogs. Actually, dogs are easier to control, but anyway. Well, look, I, 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 I'm very strong no, no, feelings no, no, I, about this. Lindsay, I completely, if I could snap my fingers tomorrow and make all, um, basically all designer dogs sterile so that they couldn't breed anymore, I would. You know, I want, I, when I was designer a dog trainer, dog. I watched a pug sneeze its own eyeballs I'm, out. Um, are you kidding? I'm not joking. Isn't that sad? It was like Ren and Stimpy, but in real life, and it wasn't funny. What it was. Did the dog die? Oh, no. They popped them they back in. They popped its eyes. It was the most horrific thing. I mean, I mean, it's in it's it's so horrific that it's hilarious again. Mm. But I mean, this is a dog that is bred to have a, yeah. a, fla- a face so flat. Yeah. I mean, I saw a documentary once where they showed the um this person an X-ray of a pug's face, mm. and the person looking at the X-ray was like, "Oh, this dog was obviously hit in the face by a car, no, and it crushed it its face." Way. It's like, no, yeah. no, no, we bred it that way because mm. it's cute. It's funny. It can't breathe, and then its face is so flat that when it sneezes too hard, its eyeballs shot out of its skull. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And you know, and I know you're so dark. Well, you're one of the darkest people I've ever met. I think it's dark to get the. I think it's dark to get the dog and not consider how horrific it is that it can't breathe. That to me is much darker than going, "Hey guys, the dog sneezes its eyes out. Maybe don't get a pun." Sorry, that wasn't a criticism. No, 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 no. no. I, 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 I totally get it. But I mean, Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Are bred to have spina bifida. The ridge on their back is indicative of spina bifida. Is that right? And when the English Kennel Club says, well, maybe you'd breed them without the ridge. Oh, no. A ridge is what defines a Rhodesian ridge back. Yeah. It's just, Hard we, I mean, we, Harden, harden up, mate. We're so off the beaten path, but we we'll, are, we'll get back to know, birds ben, in one I'm minute. Like two hours. I know, one minute. Uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> we did this last time as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not anti dog, but I'm anti irresponsible dog ownership. A hundred and So that's why I'm sort of anti dog because most, most people are. Yeah. And as an avid runner, I have been run at by so many dogs that I'm actually terrified of random dogs, right. even small ones. And when I respond strongly to owners and their off leash dog, and I get there. Oh, don't worry, he's friendly. I'm like the hackles are up, the teeth are out. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. 
And I'm like, well, I'm friendly too, mate, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I drop multiple F-bombs at them and their dog. <laughs> I kind of want to see you in that state. Technically, I'm friendly, <laughs> but not right now. Yeah. Nor I to your I, dog. My, my, from, from years of being a dog trainer, my general oh. theory is most people don't actually like dogs. They don't understand They like the idea dogs. of a dog. Yeah. They like the idea of having a thing that waits with bated breath for them to arrive at home at night and greets them as though they're a god. Mm. But the reality of a dog is they are filthy animals. When I was in a pen with 40 dogs, it was like last days of Rome. It was <laughs> depravity. Mm. Like every, mm. every depraved act you could think of they were doing. And for me, that's half of their charm is that they're just in the moment being filthy animals. Mm. Um, yeah, I think most people that get a dog, they don't reckon with the reality of it. A, they don't reckon with the reality of it. And B, they don't they don't understand what it's like to be a dog. Mm. That they're not little humans walking around on four legs. They have their own inner life. They have their own experience. They have their own, their own body language. And if you can learn to speak dog, it's much easier than getting a dog to speak English yeah. or whatever language. Um, but, yeah, most people aren't willing to do that. I found most of my time dog training, it wasn't training dogs. It, it was, was training, training the owner. Training yeah. the owner. Yeah. And to, you know. How to interpret the dog. Yeah, and how to give the dog what it wants mm. and, you know, not just get a dog, you know, oh, my dog's really anxious. Yeah, that's because it's a hunting dog and you lock it on the balcony it's for eight apartment. hours a day. Like, what yeah. Of course it's anxious. It's gone oh, crazy. Oh, get doggy Prozac for it. That'll fix it. Oh, no. Oh, my dog's depressed. It's an Alaskan Malamute and we live in Australia. Like, mm. What were you thinking? Yeah, yeah. You just wanted people to go, oh, how eclectic as you walk down the street. Yeah, or it's, how hard, you know. Or look at you and your tough dog. We are going to get hate I am this. such a, I am not fun company. You're great company. What are you talking about? For you. About? <laughs> oh, sorry, listener. No, this is perfect. Uh, most most people tell me to be quiet after a while or they just go limp. Like, okay, man, I get it. Everything's fucked. I get, I get it. it. <laughs> let me live my life. <laughs> just let me have my toaster and my dog. Leave me alone. <laughs> You're anti-toaster? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. It's the most benign thing I can think of. All oh, right. It's plugged into the electricity grid, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've got to say some stuff about birds. Yeah. Thinking is exhausting, though. You know, like to actually lead, lead, lead. Ooh, I, talking is exhausting. To live a really considered life where you deliberate over these things it's takes a lot of effort. It's exhausting. And it's easier not to. And and the path of least resistance. Mm. Anyway, whining, Ooh. whining done. <laughs> Rant over. Rant How great a bird. <laughs> a black kite on its way back to Africa after breeding in Europe. But how did they find their way here? They must have some kind of inherited map. Some undoubtedly use geographical landmarks. They come uh, along the coast. Other birds manage to use the sun, but the sun moves. So those birds presumably must also have a clock. Other birds apparently are sensitive to electromagnetic waves. The fact of the matter is, there's still a very great deal that we don't know about bird navigation. Birds' eyes and therefore brains are extraordinary. So not only can they see colour and light and dark like our basic mammalian eyes can, (laughs) they also see UV and it is pretty dead cert that they can see the Earth's magnetic field. See it. 
see it. It breaks my brain when I think about because I understand, like I, you know, for what for what it's worth, even like, chickens. I, that's crazy. Like, how does it all work? How can you see UV and all the hot full color spectrum at the same time? You're a superior being. We yeah. can't even wrap our heads around how but amazing they are. You know are. what I mean? Like, you think about oh yeah, like you, you watch something on TV where there's like, and this is the infrared spectrum. It's like oh okay, well then I guess that's what vision would look like. Mm. But to see the full spectrum mm. is just when you get into and mantis then, shrimps. And then oof. the whole like what's orthogonal to radiation is magnetism, and they can mm. see that as well. So wherever you have an electric current, you have a magnetic field. So wherever you have light, you have magnetism, and the birds can see that. They can see both. <sighs> and they're tight. Their brain is tiny. So they think they can see both. But the, Sorry, the, 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 what You talk about bird brains and how much is happening in such a small surface area and all the rest. I, I read a thing once that was talking about, you know, supercomputers and – you know, oh, they're, they're, they're superior and all the rest. And, and the person said, look, at the end of the day, yeah, they're very complicated and amazing, but the most powerful supercomputer today still can't do the basic mathematical equation that a bird's brain's doing when it just ra- lands on a random twig of a random branch of a random tree. Yeah. Like the amount of computational power that takes well, is phenomenal. So, I mean, maybe this is a nice segue. I am not a physicist and I'm a very mundane biologist. Please. But... Um, Birds use quantum stuff to see the magnetic field. It's likely that what? it's quantum. Yeah, I'm going to go there. But so quantum computers are the next thing yeah. in supercomputing and yeah. they're tiny, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or they're being developed and they're going to be tiny. Yeah. But it is quantum stuff that allows birds to see, you know, so that co- need- quantum's compact, hey. Like it doesn't take up much room. Well, what they You need have, to elaborate on that. I do and I- I'm. I haven't had enough coffee. (laughs) Um, So there is this extraordinary protein that exists in animals and plants. I don't know. It could be in us. And it is a flavo protein. (laughs) And it exists in the retina of birds' eyes, chickens included, but especially um, densely in the retina of migratory birds. My eye, meanwhile, is twitching just thinking about it. So... The retina is, of course, that parachute-like structure that hugs the humerus in the eyeball. Um, And, you know, if you go back to high school science, you would have done a dissection of an eyeball and the the retina flops out. And it connects via the optic nerve into the brain. And so that's it's a conduit into the brain. Maybe it's an extension of the brain. Uh, So this flavoprotein is called cryptochrome. Okay. And it's in the retina of birds' eyes. It's in some plants as well, but that's for another story. And there's something really extraordinary about cryptochrome. It is light sensitive. When it is exposed to blue light, so when the bird opens its eye, it hits the cryptochrome. And the cryptochrome has in it, uh, well, it gets affected by the blue light coming in and it is set up molecularly such that when the light hits the cryptochrome, adjacent molecules of it, two electrons become entangled with one another. What? They basically become freed from their mate and they become free electrons. What? So, yeah, let's go. So the light comes into the bird's eye, hits the cryptochrome, and that causes within the cryptochrome molecule adjacent electrons to become free. And when an electron is free, it can respond to an environmental stimulus. Yeah. Now... If this is too complicated, no, 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 just no, no, everyone no, no, go no, no, to sleep. No, 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 I'm just like it's – The electrons have a spin. Yeah. So they're up or down. They're spinning around, let's say. Now that spin you can think of, to simplify it, as like a polarisation. 
Uh-huh. So when you're up, let's say you're North Pole, and when you're down, let's say you're South Pole. Yeah. And that polarization is sensitive to magnetic, a magnetic field. So when the when the bird opens its eye, the light comes in, hits the cryptochrome, releases, allows the electron to become free. The electron then starts having its spin yeah. north or south. Let's we're simplifying it to north or south. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. usually up or down. And when it's spinning, when it's free and oscillating like that between north and south or up and down, it can respond to a magnetic field. And when you've got two next to each other, as occurs in a cryptochrome, it can orientate to a magnetic field that it's exposed to and tell the bird's brain, this is the theory, tell the bird's brain which direction the field is. Is it north or south orientated? Wow. And all of this came about, and I can't quite remember the details, but there were some migratory birds kept in some aviary somewhere years and years and years ago. And the scientists, being very good observational yeah. observants, noticed that the birds orientated themselves to the south in the summertime. And they're like, oh, all the birds are facing south in the aviary. That's a bit weird. Turn, you know, let's simplify this, but they blocked out the light. They removed every, every other stimulus but a ma- the Earth's magnetic field and they remained orientated to the south. So then they overwhelmed the Earth's magnetic field, which is relatively weak, with an artificial one, and the birds reorientated. Like that. That's crazy. And they're like, this is, so that's where, I think that's about where we were at when David made this film. We've come so far that we now know it's got to do with electron spin and entangled electrons. The, the two, those two, I think this is right, the two electrons that are side by side within the cryptochrome that have been freed by exposure to blue light are somehow <coughs> quantum entangled. That's nutty. This is all going on in your chicken, mate. You know, take all the bin, <laughs> bin, bin chicken, bin chicken. <laughs> UV magneto reception. You know, like so. That's literally a whole other sense that we can't even yep, yep, get yep. out. Well, that we maybe we can receive, maybe we can sense it, but I don't know. But we're so overwhelmed by our kind of primary Ooh, senses. Bin chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and then they've got other senses, like the bin chicken. They have touch, a remote touch, like kiwi, bin chicken mate. Don't say has, bin chicken. Sorry, it feels like a, it feels like a it feels like a slur. <laughs> well, especially, especially in this context of <laughs> someone is some physicist. Your, your friendly local physicist has just heard me explain that, and they're slurring me. Um, <laughs> No, they have remote touch. So at the end of their bill, this is all stuff we've learned since David filmed his fantastic bird episode. They have like uh, electric sensors at the tips of their bill. So, you know, the probing birds, when they put their bill to the ground, they can actually feel worms wriggling around in wet soil because they can sense the electric currents and stuff. It's just mad. It's crazy because, you know, we talk about trying to put your – mind and the consciousness of another creature and how to understand. But when, they're, when the senses are so diverse, like it, they're, they're, when their sight isn't even analogous to our sight, you know, and we realise that our sight is actually inferior in comparison. Far well, not, inferior. In, not inferior, just... I think inferior. <laughs> uh, so this quantum entanglement of electrons, that's the, th- the thinking of how birds navigate. As recently as June 2021, that is when... Well, that's where we're up to. Wow. What I've tried to explain is very current. And so, because I, I never understood homing pigeons, you know, how in 1400s or whatever, it's like, send out a homing pigeon and the bird just knows where to fly. Mm. What, 
is that just it's using it's all using of that, that incredible vision yeah that what wow. it can see and it's memorized it all wow yeah so pigeons or other birds with eyes on the side of their head so it's not only have they got this full spectrum of but the they've full also, electromagnetic. The full electromagnetic it's available, spectrum. Yeah. But they also have what? It's like 280-degree yeah, vision. It's, yeah, it's nuts. I think some of them can't see straight ahead. Right. But, yeah, they've, all, they've got very strange fields of view. Yeah. All, but it's all, there's lots of different. And then what we talked about last time with flicker fusion. Mm. We're potentially. Uh, they can see, yeah. They've, they, things, so, are things that merge for our slow. eyes, yeah, they can make out. It depends they are on the superior. bird. I, I'm starting to get this um, perspective. Birds are have. nuts. Yeah. They're next level. They No, they really are. Mm. And you know that when you look at them. Yes. Again, it's that thing of like, yes. whoa, what I'm even? I'm a superior being. Well, yeah. I'm, all right. <laughs> no, I'm not. They are. No, I'm not. Bird, bird <laughs> I'm, eugenics. <laughs> I'm just an enthusiast. I'm just an enthusiast. <laughs> Well, David's legacy, especially when it comes to birds, actually, I think I think his later work on mm. birds is exceptional. Yeah, the life a, of birds. Yeah, I think he has a personal uh, delight with birds. I yeah. think they're the group of animals that he most kind of resonates with. Same for me. So I, I just would love everyone to reflect on especially the exceptional eye of the bird next time you see one mm. and just dispense with this notion of, Birds aren't intelligent. Bird brains or, you know, when you see a pigeon next, just imagine how complex that creature is and, mm. and be grateful that you, a mere mammal, gets to <laughs> interact with this superior being who is a, a living dinosaur. It's amazing. Do you think it's just because, like, you know, obviously there's certain animals that we are overly familiar with just because we see them day in, day out. You, you were talking in the, uh, the previous conversation we had about the green curtain. You know, the way people just take trees for granted, it just becomes this kind of homogenized green lump. I do think it's the same with birds. It's probably the one animal other than domesticated cats and dogs that we see all the time and are just invisible. And I think that's where that kind of dismissiveness towards them comes from, oh. where it's just, you know, yeah. oh, yeah, it's a bird. Okay. And without kind of it's, – it's, it's interesting how quickly we lose that because, you know, you see, obviously kids – who haven't been completely um, jaded yet, are still so amazed by birds. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, my God, it can fly. And they're talking to each other and all this stuff. I think, yeah, I just think it's that over-familiarity where we, we lose something of it and then have some kind of misunderstanding of them that they are just dumb or they are just these kind of like almost like AI bots just kind yes. of pecking around well, and doing their thing. because they look a bit silly, you know, they're bopping yeah. their head around <laughs> and the way they stalk on their funny legs yeah. or – yeah, but no, they are exceptional. Yeah, so you think that's the biggest misunderstanding about birds, just the fact that there is, as you keep referring to them, as ha like some kind of uh, evolved or higher being. I think that they are, well, they can fly. I mean, for goodness sake, that's <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I think if they had uh, opposable thumbs, no doubt they would be in charge right now. Not yeah. us. Yeah. Not us sweet, stinky little monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lindsay Gray. Thank you, Ben. That's been wonderful. Thank you once again to the brilliant Dr. Lindsay Gray for an awesome conversation. 
And as always, thank you to my co-editor, co-producer and sound wizard, Sean Allen. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating, a review and sharing it on Twitter. Next week, my guest is Associate Professor Matthew Crowther from Sydney University. We sit down to talk all things marsupials as we watch episode nine of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.